This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Scripture reading today will be taken from Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 16. I'll give us a moment uh, to grab our Bibles, or you can follow the passage on the screen. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to their own, his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lots fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the seas and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea come down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to the land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. They then cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you, Lord. Have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. This is the word of God. Pastor Andrew will now speak to us God's word. Great to see all of you here today. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we thank you that we can come to this really powerful book, the book of Jonah. We pray that we may truly understand what you're saying and to understand who you are. And what a wonderful God you are, God who saves us all. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now today, uh, you need your Bible passage in front of you. So you need the Bible or you need your handphone in front of you because you're going to be looking through Jonah chapter 1 in detail. And I won't be flashing up uh, the passage for you. You actually need that in front of you, but I'll be flashing up uh, the references. But you definitely need your Bible in front of you. So please keep Jonah 1 open in front of you. 
Now, when I first started working many years ago, I had a colleague who really, really got on my nerves. He knew he was a, I was a Christian, and so he seemed to go out of his way to irritate me. So whenever he was around, all the swear words would come out, especially using Jesus Christ as a curse word. He said negative things about Christianity, negative things about Christians. So if there was someone whom I really struggled not to hate at work, it was this particular person. So it was a complete shock when one day I was reading this book by C.S. Lewis called The Problem of Pain. He noticed I was reading this book and he came over and asked me about it and he said, you know, what is this book about? And I said it was a book written by a Christian, a very famous Christian about the problem of suffering. And surprisingly, he asked me whether he could borrow it after I was done with it. And I said, sure. So I lent him the book. He borrowed it for a couple of weeks and then he returned it to me and I asked him how he found it and surprisingly he actually read it from cover to cover. And after that we actually started having conversations about Jesus. Now I wonder whether you have people like that whom you've met in your own life, right? people who never in a million years you would ever think would be interested in Christianity or would be worthy of God's salvation. Now all of us therefore really need to come to the book of Jonah because Jonah really speaks to that situation where we live in a world where perhaps there are people we think are not worthy of salvation and we don't really want to spend time sharing Jesus with them. So the book of Jonah begins in verse 1. The word of God, the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Now, who is this person, Jonah, the son of Amittai? When we read the Old Testament, in 2 Kings chapter 14, we actually come and find that there is a person in 2 Kings chapter 14, Jonah, the son of Amittai, who was a prophet from Geth Hefer. So in the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned for 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to sit, commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Libo Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant, Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet of Geth Hepha. Now this is really helpful for us as we come to the book of Jonah. We learn then that Jonah, the prophet, came from Israel, Samaria, the northern kingdom, right? So geographically, this is important for us to know. And as we were doing in the How to Read the Bible Faithfully uh, session, when we did the Biblical Theology section, I showed you this Graham Goldsworthy coat hanger uh, diagram which kind of explains the history of Israel. We see that, remember, God saved Moses and his people, brought them out of the Exodus, out of Egypt, into the Promised Land. But sadly, in 922 BC, the kingdom was divided into Israel and Judah. Israel, the northern kingdom in the south, uh, north, and Judah, the southern kingdom. And it wasn't too long later that Assyria, in 722 BC, uh, actually conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and deported them into exile. And so as we look at this passage here, we see that it's during the time of King Jeroboam II, 793 to 753 BC. And this is the time that Jonah was ministering in. So as you can see, it's very close to the time where the northern kingdom, Israel, was actually conquered by the Assyrians and actually taken into exile. So, 
The word of the Lord in verse 1 came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to that great city, Nineveh, and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And so here we see Gath Hepper in Israel, and Jonah, who's from Gath Hepper, is told to go to Nineveh, that great city. Nineveh at that time was a great city, it was a provincial capital, but it would later become the whole capital city of the kingdom of Assyria. Now, Assyria during this time was a regional power. Okay, you can see it uh, in this diagram. So, even at this early point, you can see that Assyria is like this superpower heavyweight of that region, right? You can see it's huge. And you can see that it's already pressing in on Israel, the northern kingdom, down there. And so, even if we look at the map that I showed you just a moment ago, you can see the Assyrian Empire is already pressing down during the times, the days of Jeroboam II down towards Syria and Israel. And so God wanted Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet, to go to Nineveh to preach against it because he says its wickedness has come up before me. What exactly was the wickedness that Nineveh was guilty of? What exactly was the evil that had come up before God? Now we don't know exactly what it was at this moment in time, in the time of Jeroboam II or Jonah's lifetime. But 200 years later, in Nahum's time, Nahum spoke against Nineveh. And we presume that 200 years is not that far, and the, the evil and the wickedness is similar. So we see here in Nahum chapter 1, verse 11, From you, Nineveh, has come forth who plots evil against the Lord and devises wicked plans. So here we see that Nineveh was a, a, a people who were evil against God, and they plotted and devised evil plans and wicked plans against the Lord. In chapter 3, there's descriptions of plunder and, and, and cruelty and conquering, right? Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, right? Charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears. Many casualties, piles of dead bodies without number, people stumbling over corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a prostitute, alluring the mistress of sorceries, who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. So we see here that Nineveh is characterized by the evil and wickedness of cruelty of war. It's a conquering nation, right? It's a violent and aggressive nation. And it's also idolatrous, full of witchcraft. We can see from outside the Bible, if you actually Google it, which I don't recommend you do right now, that if you Google Assyria, it's notorious for its cruelty, right? So there are all these fresnos, all these uh, carvings in the walls, showing uh, the cruelty of Assyria to its conquered people, right? So obviously some of this is a bit uh, non-PG, 13 friendly. But you can see here that vividly, uh, this is you know, a, 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 a nation which is uh, very, very violent towards its conquered people, right? A bit like uh, Dominic there, okay? So Dominic is actually a descendant from the Assyrians, if you didn't notice. Okay, so, so, okay, so if you look at the... the okay, so let's, let's, uh, let's come back to the Bible. So let's look at verse 3. It says then, But, right, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, 
where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, if you actually look at uh, the book of Jonah, uh, there are a lot of uh, these things called uh, conjunctions, right? Conjunctions. Conjunctions are things like buts, insteads, and ifs. And here we see the first of the very important conjunctions, but, right? And it's a very shocking but because here Jonah is a prophet. We know him from 2 Kings chapter 14. And the way he acts is surprising as a, as a prophet. He's shocking as a prophet. God tells him to go to Nineveh, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and he headed for Tarshish. Three times in this section, we are told that he went to Tarshish, right? He headed for Tarshish. He went for that port, which is Tarshish. He sailed for Tarshish. Now, geographically, if you look at the map, Jonah lives in Gath Hefer. God tells him to go to Nineveh, which is in the east, northeast. Instead, he heads for the southwest. But he doesn't end in Joppa, right? But instead, he heads for Tarshish. Now, Tarshish, in a sense, is like the furthest direction that you could get opposite to Nineveh. So this is like Tarshish. We're not sure exactly where it is, but it's somewhere in Spain, right? It's almost like if I tell you to go to KL, Malaysia, and you get on a plane and you go to Auckland, New Zealand, right? That's, that's, that's what's happening here. And that's why this but is so amazing, right? Because I don't think we can actually see in the Bible a prophet acting so rebelliously against God, right? God tells him to go to Nineveh, he's going to Tashish. Now, why is this happening? Why is Jonah, the prophet, doing this? Because in 2 Kings chapter 14, he's very happy to preach to the people of Jeroboam II, to his own people in Israel. But in Jonah chapter 1, he says, no way I'm going to preach in Nineveh, I'm going the other direction. Now I think part of the thing is, we have to understand that the reason is because Jonah does not want the word of God going to the Syrians, right? Uh, If you can tell, sort of think of it, the Syrians to Jonah and to the Israelites at the time, they were wicked people, they were cruel people, and they were scared of the Syrians, they were scattered in the Ninevites. They feared them. And, you know, they could see the future coming, that the Ninevites and the Syrians were going to conquer them. So someone in my Bible study group gave this wonderful illustration. He said it's a bit like Russia and Poland, right? So Poland's this small country in Eastern Europe, and Russia is this big giant, right? And then Russia obviously has just attacked Ukraine. It's like asking someone in Poland to go to Russia and to, like, uh, you know, bring uh, God's word to them, right? And so, for the original people reading Jonah, I think they could understand and sympathize with what Jonah was doing, right? They would be in their hearts thinking, yeah, I don't think, uh, I don't think we should bring the, the word of God to the Syrians. So as we look at the passage then, we see the classic uh, biblical narrative, right? There's a plot that has begun where God commands Jonah to preach to Nineveh but then the problem is, Jonah does not want to preach in the way, but runs in the opposite direction because he does not want the word of God to come to Nineveh because he hates them, right? He, you know, to, 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 to him, he's, they're the enemy. So what's going to happen now, right? What's going to happen now? What's going to happen to God's plan for his word to be preached against the Ninevites? What's going to happen to Nineveh? What's going to happen to Jonah? Verse 4, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, 
And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Now the word here, God sent a great wind on the sea, uh, is actually translated in other versions of the uh, translation, uh, Bible translations as God hurled a great wind, a great storm on the sea. You know, if you hurl something, it means I want to throw something at you very hard, right, to hurt you. And in a sense, that's what God is doing, right? He's hurling this great storm in order to stop Jonah from running away, right? There's this rising action by God to stop Jonah from foiling his plan to bring his word to Nineveh. And so this violent storm comes and the ship threatens to break up. And in verse 5, all the soldiers, sorry, the sailors, were afraid and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Now, we see here that we're now introduced to the two main characters who are going to dominate chapter 1, right? The sailors and Jonah. And here we're meant to contrast the actions of the two main characters. We see here that when the sea turns violent, ships going to break up, the, the sailors become afraid and what do they do? They cry out to God. But not Jonah, right? Jonah is asleep below deck. In fact, in verse 6 we read, the captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Now this is very shocking, right? Because here we see this very vivid contrast. We have pagan sailors who are fearing what's happening, crying out to their own God and praying. And we see the prophet who's sleeping, who doesn't seem to be afraid and is not praying and crying out to his own God. Verse 6 is almost humorous, right? The pagan captain goes to the prophet and rebukes him and says, how can you be sleeping? Now is the time to be getting up and praying to your God. Now the end of verse 6 is a key statement, which is really the key question of chapter 1. Maybe Jonah's God will take notice of us so that we will not perish. With this statement comes the question of what is Jonah's God really like, right? What is Jonah's God really like? Is he a God who takes notice of those who cry out to him? Is he a God who saves those who are perishing? And who does he save, right? So here we have the pagan captain rebuking the prophet Jonah. The passage goes on in verse 7. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? And from what people are you? Now these are sailors who have spent their whole life on the sea. And so they recognize that the sea, the storm, this wind has a supernatural quality to it, right? It's, it's, like, it's too intense to just be of natural origin. And so they practice an ancient method of trying to find out what God is doing, right? And so they cast lots. And then they find out that it's Jonah who is the problem. Right? Jonah is the one who is the problem. 
But I want us to notice something that's interesting, right? Uh, the word that is translated calamity and trouble in the NIV, in its original language, this word is actually the same word which is used in verse 2. Is the word evil or wicked. Now this is deliberate, right? The narrator of Jonah has not accidentally used the same word, but deliberately used the same word which, he, which God used initially to describe uh, Nineveh to describe Jonah. So if you notice here, the sailors asked, and they said, come let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. Again, the same word in verse 2, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So what is the narrator trying to say in the narrative? He's actually trying to say, in a not-too-subtle way, that in many ways, what Jonah is doing, in terms of his uh, rebellion against God, is as evil as the rebellion of the Ninevites. When you think about it, that's true, right? So we saw before that the Ninevites made wicked plans against God, right? Isn't that what Jonah is doing now? He has his own plans, wicked plans against God's will. But not only that, we saw that in earlier on, in 2 Kings, that the Ninevites also had a very callous disregard for the life of other people. And as we look at the narrative doesn't Jonah also have a callous disregard for the life of the sailors? He's happily sleeping away in the deck, even though these innocent sailors are at risk of dying as well. And so, as we look at this passage, we see that Jonah, in a sense, is not actually uh, as good as he thinks he might be, but actually in his actions, he is, he is as evil as the Ninevites. The passage goes on in verse, 10, uh, verse 9 and 10. He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. Now, the first words that come out of a person's mouth in Hebrew narrative are important. Okay, the initial words the person speaks usually are revelatory. They're, they show an exposition of the character, what that person is really like. Here we see the first words that come out of Jonah's mouth. You know, at this point, we, we've never heard Jonah open his mouth and speak, right? So the first words that he speaks are this, right? He said to them, I'm a Hebrew. Right? He doesn't say, I come from Israel, the northern kingdom, or, or, or from Judah. He says, I'm God's people, right? I belong to God. And I fear or worship the Lord. And this Lord is no ordinary Lord, right? He's the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So the Lord God that Jonah worships is not a local God, the false gods that the sailors are crying out to, but he is the God of heaven. He is the universal God. He is the supreme God. He is the God of all. 
And this God is the creator God. He made the sea and the dry land. And he is the one who controls what's happening to the ocean around them right now. Now, the thing that we want to kind of note here is, Jonah says that I fear, right? I fear the Lord. But as we've been going through Jonah so far, just the first eight verses, does Jonah really fear the Lord? You see, out of his mouth, he may say he fears the Lord, he worships God, but with his actions, he doesn't seem to be fearing God at all, right? He's, first of all, running away. Instead of going to Nineveh, he's running away to Tashish. We see that when the sailors are crying out and praying to their gods, Jonah is sleeping. The sleep is not because he's trusting God to take care of him, but it's a sleep that seems to be of a conscience which is unbothered by the fact that he's running away from God, that he might actually die, right? He's, the ability to sleep deeply in the circumstances that he has seems to be seems of, of someone who's not really fearing God at all. And therefore, if we really look at verse 9 and 10, it's almost a parody, right? It's almost an irony of humor. On one hand, he says, I fear the Lord, but then in verse 10, the sailors knew that he was already fleeing from the presence of God because he had told them so. Now, this is not possible, right? These two statements cannot be taken together. You cannot fear the Lord and still be running away from God. It's ludicrous, right? It's, it's ridiculous. So the passage goes on. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, and so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down. Pick me up and throw me or hurl me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Now what we see here is an escalation of the action, right? Escalation of the tension. The stakes are rising higher, right? Already the storm was threatening to break up the ship in verse 3. And here in verse 11, we see the sea is getting even rougher and rougher. But what Jonah says is truly shocking, right? Jonah says to the sailors, throw me into the sea. If Jonah truly feared God, that is not the right answer, right? Because what Jonah is saying is that he would prefer to drown and die than to go back to Nineveh or turn around to back to Joppa and, and, and go to Nineveh to preach to the Syrians. And so, as God is escalating the action, Jonah is also escalating the action. First of all, he's rebellious enough to run to the opposite direction. But now, even worse, he's willing to die. He's, he's, his rebellion is such that death is preferable than obedience God. Now, verse 13 goes on. It says, Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Now, there's another conjunction here, right? The instead. And this is a, another but, right? Now, the men, instead of throwing Jonah overboard, which would be an option for many people, they actually, it says they are doing their best to try to save Jonah from the wrath of God. Right? 
the sea is getting rougher and rougher, but they keep trying to save Jonah. Now, this is a contrast, right? Because in verse 4 and 6, while, the Jonah, while Jonah was sleeping, the sailors were in danger of drowning. But Jonah didn't bother to try to save the sailors at all. He was sleeping. He was willing to drown together with the sailors. It didn't really bother him. But here we see in verse 13 a contrast, right? The sailors are pulling hard at the oar to try to save Jonah. And so the pagans, in a sense, are selfless in trying to rescue Jonah, but the prophet is selfish. He's only caring about himself. And this is going to be, in a sense, a characteristic of Jonah that we're going to see through the next three chapters, right? He is, in a sense, very selfish in who he really wants to save. Now, in verse 14, it says, Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you please. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. Now, here we see that the sailors cry out to God, before, in the earlier verses, who did they cry to? They cried to their own gods, right? But now they cry to the Lord. They cry to Jonah's God, the God of heaven, the one who creates the sea and controls the sea. And they cry out to God. And what did I cry out for? Do not make us accountable for killing an innocent man. And here we see the transformation of the sailors, right? That they really do fear God. Now, they may not know about the Ten Commandments, the Sixth Command, do not murder, but they are aware of sin. They fear God's justice, they fear God's wrath of the guilt of killing innocent blood. And so, what we see here is the sailors, in many ways, are acting out the fear of God, even though in their own mouths, they don't say, I fear the Lord. Verse 15 and 16, Then Jonah, they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the man greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. And so here as we see, the sea was getting more and more wild. The sailors had no choice. They threw him to the sea. And by verse 15, the action has been resolved, right? Jonah is no longer running away from Nineveh. The sea grows calm. So when you really look at the text, we could have stopped at verse 15, right? We don't really need verse 16. But actually verse 16 is really, really important. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him in the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. See, this then is very important, right? Because the ceasing of the raging of the sea shows the sailors the reality of Jonah's God, that he is truly the creator of the seas, that he is truly the one who controls nature, he is the God of heaven. It shows them 
that the statement of verse 9 is true. That God is a God that controls all these things. And as a result, what do they do? They fear the Lord exceedingly. Now this is very significant, right? Because we see that there's this theme of being afraid of fear as we've been going through the book of Jonah. In verse 5, they were afraid of the storm. They cried out to their own gods. In verse 10, they were exceedingly afraid. By verse 16, they feared the Lord exceedingly. And what did they do when they feared the Lord? They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. Now next week, we're going to see that Jonah does exactly the same thing, right? When he's in the belly of the fish. He also will sacrifice and vow to God. So what we're trying to see here is that actually the actions of the pagan sailors mirrors that of the prophet Jonah. And this is showing us that from verse 1 to verse 16, the pagan sailors have become true believers. Their fear right, has now turned to a worshipful fear of the Lord God, Jonah's God. They make sacrifice and they make vows, right? They, they in a sense, give their lives in service to the Lord God, Jonah's God. Now this is the lesson that we're meant to learn in this section, right? Remember I said chapter 1 verse 6 is a really important statement by the pagan captain, right? What is God like? Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. So what is Jonah's God like? Does he hear those who cry out to him? Does he save those who are perishing? And who does he save? Well, as we've seen in this passage, as we've seen in this chapter, the Lord God, Jonah's God, is the one who saves all who cry out to him and fear him. Now, this is the lesson that we see from this passage, Jonah chapter 1. Right? The Lord God is the one who saves all who cry out to him and fear him. But we see also that it's linked, in a sense, pointing forward to Jesus, right? So in Luke chapter 8, which we studied not too long ago, in Matthew chapter 8, which relates the same event, Jesus was on the boat with his disciples, and suddenly there was a huge storm, okay? And Jesus was sleeping. Then the disciples went to wake him up and say, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. And he says, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? And then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves and it was completely calm. And the men were amazed and they said, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So what kind of man, in a sense, in inverted commas, is Jesus? Well, if we see what Jesus does and we see what Jonah did, uh, sorry, what happened in Jonah's time, Jesus is not really a man at all, right? Jesus has the power of God. And so Jesus, in the Gospels, in Matthew and Luke, is the God of heaven, is the one who controls the seas. But we also see, as we go through the whole of the New Testament, that Jesus also, through God working through Jesus, is saving all people of the earth who cry out to him and fear him. So in the book of Luke, when we were studying Luke, we saw that Jesus was saving all sorts of people who were seen as unworthy of God's salvation, right? The Samaritans, who would actually be descendants of Jonah. The tax collectors, the sinners, the Gentiles, the Romans, the centurions, the demon-possessed. 
in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, it tells us that Jesus, right, died for all people, right? So verse 3, this is good and is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, right? Which is the testimony given at the proper time. So Jesus came in his ministry, in his incarnation, to save all people. And on the cross, he comes to save all people. He tells in Matthew chapter 28 for his disciples to go and to make disciples of all nations. And as we've looked in our responsive reading on the day of Pentecost, this is fulfilled, right? Because all people start receiving the Holy Spirit. And it's a fulfillment of the prophet Joel where everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then lastly, in the book of Revelation, when we are given a glimpse into heaven, we see that in heaven there's a great multitude from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They are all wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands and they are crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now this means that for all of us here, there are several very important applications or implications, right? Now, first of all, it means that if you're not a Christian today, you're not saved and you're listening to this message, then it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done or what background you have. If you cry to God and you fear and worship God, you turn to Jesus Christ, there is a promise that God saves all people, right? That God will save you if you do so, just as we've seen today. Over the years, I've been privileged to meet different people who have been saved by Jesus. I've met Muslim people who become Christians. I've met refugees in Australia who become Christians. I've met criminals in prison for very serious offenses who become Christian. I've met Japanese people who become Christian. Orphans in Indonesia. I know a Singaporean lady who does ministry in Taiwan. The prostitutes who become Christians. In theological college, I met gang members. Everybody can be saved if they turn to God, they cry out to God and fear God and turn to Jesus Christ. And if that's you, then you need to hear what is happening here, right? What sort of God Jonah's God is and how the offer of salvation is for you too. For those of us who are already saved in Christ, today's passage really also speaks to us in terms of we need to have the heart of God to want to save all people, right? For the original readers, the, the Jews, the Israelites who were reading Jonah, they would be rebuked because they would also have the same prejudices and the same, I guess, uh, racist, xenophobic feelings that, um, that Jonah had against the Syrians. And God is really saying to them, look, I'm a God who is a God of all, right? I'm a God of heaven and I'm the God who saves all people. And so we should never feel that anyone is not worthy of God's salvation because that's like the spirit of Jonah working in us, right? So even in my own life, I sort of think of people that I know. I have an uncle who is very obnoxious and rude every Chinese New Year. I see him. 
you know, I, I'm not particularly fond of thinking that, you know, I should be praying for him or sharing the good news of Jesus with him. If you met someone who was, say, a child molester or a rapist or a murderer, would you feel that they are beyond God's salvation and, and, and be unwilling to want to share the good news of Jesus with them? I remember someone was telling me once about how someone had a very old relative who was about to die. And um, this relative had been an, a very unpleasant person most of their life. But this person actually became a Christian uh, quite late in life. And this relative said, you know, it's very unfair, you know. It's very unjust that this person had been so evil and sinful and hurt me in so many ways when they were younger. And then now they're going to heaven because they believe in Jesus. Right? I don't know. I guess some of us, we, we may resonate with that sort of sentiment, right? But at the end of the day, God is the God who is able and willing and wanting for all to be saved. And it's not for us to say, oh, well, that person is not worthy of salvation. The last application is the fear of the Lord. Jonah, in his, the very first words that came out of his mouth, said, I'm a Hebrew and I worship and fear the Lord. But we know and see that actually his actions show that he does not fear the Lord at all, right? In fact, he is willing, he would prefer to die than do God's will. I wonder whether for us, with our mouths, we say we worship God or we fear the Lord, but we are in some part of our lives in a very high-handed, in a very stubborn way, rejecting what we know God wants us to do. If that's the case, then Jonah 1 is actually a rebuke to us as well, isn't it? That in God's eyes, we are in a sense just as evil as the Ninevites, uh, which is the way that God sees uh, Jonah at this stage. And so let us not fear the Lord with our, our words, right, or just our highest sayings, but in reality in our hearts and our actions. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we truly pray and ask that you may help us to feel the full force of Jonah chapter 1. Dear Father, if there are some of us here today who are yet undecided in being saved, we pray that they may be like the sailors in verse 16. After seeing your great act of supernatural control over the seas, then they feared you exceedingly and they offered sacrifices to you and made vows to come before you and to serve you. Dear Father, we pray too that if there are people here who have not made that step of faith, that they will see that they need to. They need to cry out to you, that they need to fear you and worship you and turn to Jesus. Dear Father, we pray for ourselves who may not uh, want to bring the good news to people. We may not want to pray for people because we feel that they are unworthy or for whatever reason we don't like them or we feel threatened by them. Because, dear Father, you are a God who saves all, uh, including the most desperate of sinners. And so we pray for us that we will have the heart to want to save them as well. And dear Father, we pray that we will not just say that we fear and worship you with our mouths, but also with our actions and our hearts and our attitudes. Dear Father, it's so easy for us to just 
mouth, uh, empty words, but help us to be truly genuine in our fear and worship of you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Pastor, for speaking to us this morning. We will now uh, have a time of breakout and reflections, uh, reflection and discussions. So the question is on the screen. You can take uh, maybe a good five minutes uh, to share with your neighbor what you have learned. Uh, what have you learned about God today and how should you respond to God? And then we'll come back uh, for the rest of the service. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.